welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adamore Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of fitness. With us today is Ross Drome. Ross, it's great to have you on. Hey guys, happy to be here. Thank you. So Ross is probably the most knowledgeable person that I know when it comes to fitness and fitness health. He's someone who has worked in the fitness space and the strategy side. He also is a certified yogi. He's traveled all over the world. He's always giving me tips on supplements and health and how to, how to have, live a plant-based life for longevity and everything else. So yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation. And just to sort of play out how I'm thinking about this conversation, obviously when we think about fitness, two big components are diet and exercise. And there's also the business side of it, right? So how is the fitness space evolving? How are new technologies and products and how is the industry changing? So I want to first talk about diet, then exercise, then we can get into the business technological side and then we'll get into the future scenarios. Does that sound good? Yeah, cool. That makes sense. Awesome. So uh, to start out, what's your philosophy when it comes to diet? I mean, obviously people are different, but is there anything that can be said about which diets are better than others? Yeah, it's, I think it's hard to say there's like a one size fits all model when it comes to diet, just from my, my own experience. Um, personally, also talking with others and just reading. Um, I really like Michael Pollan's philosophy as it pertains to diet, which is just eat food, mostly plants. Mm-hmm. Right? Like just, just eat whole food that is, you know, from the earth and unprocessed. And it can include, you know, obviously plants vegetables, fruits, seeds, whole grains, like meat and fish, totally fine. But I think it needs to be mostly plants because in our evolutionary past, that's most likely what we were eating first, right? And then occasionally we probably hunted something and feasted on meat for a period. And then we would probably eat, you know, tubers and weird plants on the ground for the other, you know, 80% of the time. So I think that philosophy uh, has worked for me in terms of my own health and happiness and, and overall well-being. And I feel like just for my own research, that seems to be like the, the only way to sort of put a one-size-fits-all model, which is, again, eat food, mostly plants, and mm-hmm. stay away from processed food. That's, that's yeah. the problem is we have this convenience culture that's allowing us access to food that has incredibly long shelf life that's cheap uh, to manufacture and also eat, but you know, a, a, a Twinkie or a Twix, that's not really food, right? Yeah. It's just, uh, what is this processed food product? It's not giving us nutrition and that's what we need to stay away from. Right. I definitely agree on the processed food side. It's, I mean, as an analogy, you can think about like, what sort of media do you consume? Do you consume the first sources, like where things actually originate? Or are you just getting like some curated version that's been been put a spin on it like a million times? So it's always good to go to the source. Although I would push back on just as as it's related to the carnivore diet. And I know that there's the research there is not really definitive, but I've heard some pretty compelling cases for the carnivore diet actually being healthier than the plant-based diet well so wait can we clarify carnivore diet you mean the majority of your calories are coming from meat like pretty much just meat and mostly red meat red meat red meat can you elaborate on so i i have something to say too because i'm a little more familiar with the 
uh, carnivore diet. So this is something <laughs> yeah. that like Jordan Peterson tried mm -hmm. after being overweight and having a lot of autoimmune conditions. But so there's been a lot of um, criticism about why the carnivore diet works. And it seems like it tends to work because people are switching from a standard American diet to an only meat-based diet. Whereas, so there's a lot of um, pro-inflammatory things that are being cut out of the diet. So a lot of autoimmune conditions might be uh, decreased with the carnivore diet. I think a lot of dietitians are sort of stumped as to why it works, at least in the short term. But a lot of, you know, there's people that guess that it's probably because they're switching from something way worse than what they're on now. So it's and almost from ketogenic. an elimination perspective. Yeah. Right. And standard American diet, you mean it's like including like all the processed food you just food talked food. about. Yeah. 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 No, I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, I think your, your well-being as a result of your diet is completely a result of your starting point. Right. So I can, mm. I can totally agree that, you know, going from a more processed based diet, I guess, if you will, to a carnivore based diet, that's, you know, high quality sort of grass fed kind of meats is probably going to be better than that standard American diet we're talking about. I would argue that for 90% of people, if you switch that to more than 50% of calories from plants and then, you know, smaller portion from high quality meats, you're probably going to have better metabolism because you're going to have more fiber. You're going to be, you know, pooping more, which is obviously very healthy for your whole body, <laughs> you know, be getting all these nutrients that you can't really get solely from meat and ones that you know you need to eat a high volume of plants to get a meaningful amount of those right um so you know, vitamins or something like that yeah so i had heard all that and i was i pretty much was in full agreement but then i had recently listened to the joe rogan episode with dr sean baker and he's okay. i mean this guy has like broken world records and he eats strictly meat and one thing that he said is that when you do eat a flesh-only diet, your body can process pretty much all of it, which is why you tend to not like have as many bowel movements. Um, and, and one of the things he said too is like, so with uh, a meat-based diet, you don't have a lot of vitamins and minerals that you would typically get from vegetables. Right. But I, so I know the podcast you're talking about, and what he was saying is. Apparently with meat, when you're eating only meat and not eating vegetables, you don't even need the vitamin C's or all of these other vitamins because those are mainly used to help you digest and absorb plants. Right. So it's, I, I don't orange, know, I didn't really follow the argument. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, like, he used orange juice as an example, which is like orange juice has, a, has carbs, but it also has vitamin C, and those things together are like a good cocktail for your body. But if you don't have the carbs, then you wouldn't really need the same same sort of vitamins or the same sorts of fibers. So I found it interesting because I wanted to just like find the actual science on this. So I did a lot of searching around the web. But to my knowledge, there has never been an actual research study done about a meat only diet. There have only been studies done about how many servings of meat do you have per week. But that doesn't say yeah. anything about the other stuff you're consuming. Right. Yeah, it's super hard to do that in a clinical setting. So the so the only way that I was really able to look at like, okay, how can we actually get to an objective 
um, consensus on what is good is seeing how are the different health spans and lifespans of various countries and the diets that they have. So for yeah. instance, like, you know, Mediterranean diet is typically talked about as the best diet, which obviously has a lot of, you know, fish um, and olive oil, but it has lots of veggies and, you know, fruits and other good stuff too. And then Japan also is, you know, they have some of the longest lifespans. Currently, the oldest person in the world is in Japan, and that's pretty, pretty common. And they have yes. a very high protein diet, but they also have, you know, some other uh, whole grains, like in the form of rice, obviously, and some veggies, yeah. too. Um, so it's interesting yeah. how, like, it seems like different types of assemblages of, of uh, nutrients seem to work well. So it doesn't seem like there's like one steady state. It seems like there's multiple steady states. Like for instance, in the Nordic countries, they have lots of fibers and nuts and berries and muesli and stuff like that. They have almost no meat. So, and they yeah. live great, long, healthy lifespans. Yeah, I, I think what we're kind of conflating here is like history and specifically genetic history. I think where we come from and those these populations of people, there's genetic differences across groups that affect how they absorb nutrients from food hmm. um, based on what they've eaten over time, right? So, you know, you're talking about these blue zones where people are living super long and these are, you know, Japan, for example, very homogeneous. They've been living there for a very long time and they're accustomed to this diet, which, you know, objectively is, is quite healthy and clearly they have been able to live really, really long. Um, I guess my point being that, you know, you look at other corner to the world where they're eating diets that you know individuals in america could not eat for example like the maasai in africa are known for being meat-based eaters right, they eat right. meat you know we'll have blood ceremony and milk and all this stuff but only three percent or something like that actually have any incidence of high cholesterol so like the connection between mm -hmm. eating a diet and cholesterol for them like genetically you need you need you need the genes to turn on that sort of hardening of the, of the arteries if they don't have that experience and they live perfectly healthy lives. So I think, you know, what's tough with diet in a, in a one size fits all model is, you know, we have the genetic paths um, based on the population we come from. And that kind of determines how we absorb nutrients from food. So I think mm. you just need to look at, you know, where you're, where you're coming from and then apply sort of uh, what works for you, you know? That's interesting. So sort of like personalized. Yeah. Diet. Yeah, personalized. Um, you know, Northern Europeans can process milk very easily because they've, you know, you know, used dairy from cows to produce cheese and things like that. But, you know, you go to parts of Africa where they didn't have that as much. It's harder for them to digest, you know, lactose yeah. and things. So, um, well, it is interesting. Like, like, I remember, um, I don't know if you've heard about this athlete, Colin O'Brady. He just like literally walked mm -hmm. across all of Antarctica. And he's done other world records, like summited the seven biggest mountains in the world in the fastest time. And I mean, this guy is a super athlete. And before he did that Antarctica trek, he had a hundred days of blood testing to find out exactly what the right nutrients are for his body. And they created this like superfood bar specifically for him. And, you know, he accomplished his goal. Would you recommend finding the right diet for yourself through testing or would you maybe recommend like elimination and then see how you feel like what would you recommend to someone who let's say currently has the typical unhealthy american diet and how do they get to a healthy place that's good for them 
Yeah, that's a good point. Like how to start. I think there's a couple ways. And, and to your point, um, you know, there's ways to do it like evidence based with testing your 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 your, your biomarkers to determine what you're deficient in. And also to determine, you know, recommendations based on certain medical philosophies on what you should be eating. And there's also the more practical approach that I think people have been using for millennia, which is you eat something and see you see how you feel, mm-hmm. you know, and then slowly subtract things one at a time, you know, wait a couple of weeks, 30 days and see how you feel and then decide if that thing was irritating you, if that thing is something that you should continue having in your diet. I think given the access now, the increasing access to um, like testing kits and these services that help you understand what types of diets you should be eating based on your genetics or based on your biomarkers, I think those are helpful inputs. Uh, I, I, I doubt that they're as accurate as we want them to be right now. So mm-hmm. I think that you know, above and beyond that, it's really just how you feel. And mm-hmm. it takes termination to one by one selectively determine what ingredients are irritating you or are good for you. But that exercise just throughout your life is gonna lead to a health, you know, healthier, happier you, you know? So, you know, people have been doing that with gluten, obviously in, in recent past, but you know, there's little things. I mean, my one of my colleagues just discovered that he just had no idea, but couldn't process legumes, you know, mm. which is a lot of, you know, any beans or peanuts or random like legumes, something about legumes he could not process. and it, cause some terrible, you know, gastrointestinal distress. Um, so I guess that's a longer than Andrew saying, yes, I think that, you know, if you're determined, you can selectively modify your diet by removing things one at a time and testing yourself. And I think now with the advent of technology, we have another sort of way to triangulate and test ourselves to guide mm-hmm. the process. Yeah. And so there's an app called MyFitnessPal, if you've ever heard of that oh, yeah, one where basically you can scan the barcodes of whatever you're eating or just input whatever you're eating because I think it's important to actually track mm-hmm. stuff because I don't remember what I ate two days oh, ago yeah. so so you yeah. need to at least have some sort of quantification of what you're eating so you can look back and see what made you feel that way unless yeah. you're eating the same exact thing you know for for 30 days and eliminating which you know may or may not be uh, relevant but I really like those new apps that help you, you know, track oh, yeah. yourself. And wearables and all this. Like, mm-hmm. that's you need to be determined, but now technology is making it easier to keep track. Yeah. And with your diet, do you typically cook your own food or do you go out? Because, I, I, you know, it's hard to have a, the exact right diet if you're eating out. And I wonder if you yeah. have any thoughts about, like, meal delivery kits versus, like, getting your own stuff. Because... I've had that uh, that question in my own life of like, how much should I be depending on a meal delivery kit versus like finding the freshest stuff at farmers markets? How much that all matters? Yeah, I mean the whole thing's a push and pull, right? Like you have to do what works for your schedule. For me personally, I'm actually just starting a new job, so my schedule has changed kind of a lot in the last month. Um, but I'm starting a new regimen of making breakfast every day and bringing lunch to work every day, and then dinners I'll either cook or eat out. But I have like two out of three that I'm controlling and I know exactly what's going into it. And then yeah. the third, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm a conscious and aware person and I make decisions on a daily basis and I don't harp on it. But, you know, I try to make smart decisions on what I put on my body. Luckily, in a place like Los Angeles, for example, you have lots of options for, you know, healthy, fresh food if you go to the right places, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that was one of the big things that, you know, Scott Adams had talked about in regards to diet where, 
and and just life in general where it's better to have systems than goals so rather than to say like i'm gonna lose 20 pounds by this date you say when i wake up in the morning i'm gonna have this type of food when i'm hungry in the afternoon even though i already had lunch i'm gonna have this for a snack like having situation dependent systems as opposed to just like a goal that you're running towards blindly much more tactical right it's that's a better way of those are all based on goals, right? You want to lose 20 pounds, but you need to create the system that supports that and then follow the system because mm-hmm. the your your actions are going to get lost if you're just going towards a goal. It needs to be based on a system. I totally agree. Yeah. Now, one thing that was interesting when I was researching the healthiest countries was that the French have some of the longest lifespans. They're very healthy and they eat wine and they have like cheese and wine and lots of bread and... So it seems like totally counterintuitive that the French would be so healthy. But when you dig into the data more, it seems like really it comes down to portion control. Like they don't have a ton of what they're eating. And secondly, the quality is very high. So like, yeah, dairy might not be the, you know, you might not want to have tons of dairy per day, but if you do have some cheese, it should be some high quality cheese. Or if you do have some bread, have some like really nutritious bread, not like wonder bread. Yeah, something that's actually fermented and easy to, to digest. Um, yeah, I think portion is something we didn't talk about. That's really important, right? Like the amount that you eat is also a huge determinant in your overall health, you know, from your diet. If you eat too much, your system's going to be overwhelmed and you're going to feel sluggish and terrible. But if you eat the right amount or not too much, and we know all this research about intermittent fasting is coming up, yeah. like our body runs more optimally when we're, you know, eating the right amount, right? So portion control is, is, is very important. That's something we didn't talk about yet. Yeah, do you partake in intermittent fasting or how do you think about that? I do, but it's not really something that I'm controlling. It's just occasionally I will skip a dinner, you know, and just right. it'll be fine. Like I'll, I'll be aware of it, but I, won't, I don't have a set regimen of doing it. It just happens naturally because I'm busy and I skip meals here and there. And I know in the back of my mind it's fine. And I feel fine afterwards. So yeah. based on the research, it allows me to do it without feeling like, oh, I'm hurting my body. Whereas I think previously before reading into intermittent fasting, I was maybe a little bit concerned that I might be hurting my body. So now I feel more comfortable and, and flexible to occasionally intermittent fast, you know, skip yeah. dinner or skip breakfast. It's really not that hard. You know, you just need to go probably 14 to 16 hours without eating to start, you know, the beneficial aspects of intermittent fasting how about you justin do you do any? oh yeah i i intermittent fast every day and it's not really again it's not really on purpose kind of like how ross uh, does it but i never eat breakfast i skip breakfast i mean I, I have tea or maybe coffee sometimes in the morning but i i pretty much only eat from 12 to 8 so noon mm. to 8 p.m and how do you um, feel like your brain function is in the morning, like before eating? Versus- oh, so good. I mean, it, well, it's so the really the only time when my brain is affected after I eat is if I have a super high carb meal. I just feel mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. after the subsequent uh, blood sugar spike, I'll you know start to get a little brain fog and um, feel a little tired. But for the most yeah. part, if I eat, you know, plants and maybe a little bit of oil and a little bit of meat it's fine. It's like when I eat rice or really heavy stuff that mm-hmm. tends to make me feel uh, down a little bit. Yeah, I noticed that, I mean, I switched from, I used to have oatmeal every morning, 
and I still have it occasionally, but I switched to having just lean meat in the morning and Ooh. I feel like so much better. I mean, I can get so much more done and it might just uh -huh. be specific to me, but, mm. um, you know, definitely I've noticed the effects. Yeah. Some people are really good at processing carbs in the morning. Like some people will eat cereal and oatmeal for, uh, breakfast every single morning and just feel super energized for hours but yeah. i personally can't you know i can't do that without feeling tired afterwards it's so interesting I, so me i'm definitely a, a carb person in the mornings because it, it does fuel me with sustained energy mm -hmm. and it needs to be something a little more complex than like a cereal but like oatmeal mm -hmm. like that's complex enough where i eat that and it's the best meal before a gym or even after a gym just to you know restore glycogen stores for me it's something that's easy yeah. to digest for hours and hours. Well, so I used to feel that way, but I don't know if something within me changed. But I, uh, I was also, I was researching some of like the myths of diet and food. And one mm -hmm. myth is that your metabolism slows down throughout your life. Really, it yep. only start. it only up until age 30, you have pretty much the same metabolism for the rest of your life. So it does slow down from like being a kid until age 30, but it's not like it keeps declining mm -hmm. in your 40s and 50s. It's just that people tend to like, you know, not exercise and not stop caring really about their health a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, it is important to tie diet to every other part of your life too. Like it is important to tie diet to whatever your fitness goals are, because if, if you don't care about working out, then maybe you have a lower carb diet. If you want to be a bodybuilder, you know, and, and lose all of your excess fat, maybe you need to uh, crack down on carbs sometimes, but not other times when you're in a building phase. So there's mm -hmm. like there's a whole bunch of things that need to factor into your diet. I mean, also your social life, right? right? So if you're if you're stressed and you're eating a whole bunch of carbs, um, a lot of stuff, a lot of uh, I believe uh, blood sugar can get pumped into uh, body uh, fat stores if you're always in a fight or flight mode because you're always stressed. Mm -hmm. So so there's like all these different components of people's lives that matter. And your diet can, you know, that's just one part of everything. It's one yeah. part of the whole. And one, one other thing on diet, and then we can move on to exercise, but I, I've been watching the show Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which is the mm -hmm. cooking show. And it's really interesting hearing about like what makes food good, really. And they say that really what makes food tasty is the fat. And whatever oh, yeah. fat you use pretty much defines that cuisine. So what Mediterranean food would not be Mediterranean food if you didn't use olive oil as the fat. And same thing with like <laughs> Spanish cooking is all about lard. And, uh, you know, French cooking is all about the butter. Do you guys have thoughts on like what you, you know, what might be the healthiest types of fats to consume? Or do you have a personal philosophy on that? Hmm. Well, I mean, I just like to eat a whole bunch of variety. Like, I, that's one of the other things. I don't like to keep a static diet, like one mm. that kind of changes. So I don't want to have all of my fat from avocado oil or all of my fat from coconut oil or yeah. olive oil. It just, there's, you know, there's so I think much the, conflicting information out there about like mm -hmm. whether coconut oil is good or bad. Like, it's really hard to research online and find the, an actual answer to that question. Mm. As long as it's yeah. high quality, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I like a variety of fat sources. For me, because I'm plant-based, I 
get those from plants primarily. And I love nuts and avocados and things like that. I mean, I can eat almonds all day. And that can be very, very satiating, primarily because of that fat content that you get from that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, variety of fats, mostly plants, you know, occasionally meat yeah. and other sorts. I'll just take like shots of olive oil in the morning. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, also, I also love olive oil. I could, I could do that. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Well, anyway, so I think we've covered diet pretty well. It really matters about you, who you are, you know, but I think what you said initially definitely rings true where it's all about having good ingredients and plant-based typically is better than not. Although I've, you know, I think that there is, does still need to be more research done on the carnivore diet side. So I'd like to talk about exercise and, you know, what do you guys think are the healthiest exercises for longevity? And then is there anything about the way that you exercise? Like some people are, like, because, you know, in researching this, some people will say that, oh, you know, walking and and uh, all of these low impact things are really great for a long life. But then on the other side, you'll see research that says that, oh, actually, if you have high intensity, even if you're not doing it for as long, that will lead to a better long term effects. Um, what what have you you guys found in your research and life experience? Yeah. So I think both those groups are right. I think there's two components exercise that everyone should be aware of. And that's aerobic exercise, which is like this long walking, something that's easy, but elevates your heart rate. That's for heart health. And that's for overall, um, like heart health is so important and that's aerobic health. That's aerobic exercise. So doing those low intensity exercises are good for your your heart health, which is going to be good for your longevity because your heart is something that you need to keep after for a long period of time. On the flip side, like muscular strength and endurance is also very, very important. And that's something that, you know, the people who are fans of high intensity interval training mm-hmm. would, would claim as the most important aspect. But I think both of those things need to work in combination for overall sort of fitness and health. That's sort of my opinion. Right. But if you could only do one, like let's say – Let's say you, you either are going to, uh, for an A-B test, let's say in a research study, one group will just sprint as fast as they can for 60 seconds, and another group will, you know, take a leisurely one-hour walk. What would you think would, I mean, New York Times did a study on this, and they found that it was pretty similar results depending on, like, basically a 60-second sprint is just as good as a one-hour walk or a, like a 15-minute jog. You know, really interesting. Yeah. I, think, I think I saw some article actually about that. I would probably think that something that's more aerobic is better for longevity because it's better for your heart health. You just, in order for it to be aerobic, you, it, it can't be super leisurely. You, you know, you need to reach, you know, 50 to 75% of your, you know, max heart rate um, to get something that's like meaningful, but it can be sustained for 30 minutes, you know, which is a long exercise, a long, a long sprint. Um, that's sort of my opinion. I think, I think heart health is impacted a lot more by aerobic exercise, which is that lower intensity, longer format. But I guess you're saying that seen evidence that maybe that they're equivalent as, as long as, you know, they're <clears throat> the right levels, right? You have a 60 right. second sprint, whatever, one hour leisurely walk. I don't know what the comparison yeah. was. I mean, but... this study was, wasn't done like over their whole lifespan. It was just done with like the immediate effects. So we would need probably more research to know, you know, in the long term how that's affected. Yeah. Yeah. 
as far as what types of exercise, because, you know, you're a yogi, I'm a yogi, mm -hmm. you're like an actual certified yogi, but is that enough? If someone just does yoga once a day, is that enough? Or is there something that that person's missing out on? So I think usually it's not enough, but it can be. Yoga is a very, very broad category of <clears throat> meditation and also exercise. And it just depends on the type of yoga you're going for. Um, if you're doing, you know, the flowy sort of vinyasa cardio focused yoga, I think that's probably sufficient, you know, because there's, there's strength involved, you're planking, you're doing core work, you know, you're stretching, you're doing mobility stuff. Um, so I think if you're doing, you know, mindful vinyasa classes, that's probably enough, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, depending on your goals, you're going to want to do other things too. Like my goals are, you know, to have, be flexible, to also be strong. So for me, vinyasa is great, but I also need to lift weights if I want to have the results that I want, the strength that I want, and to be able to do the things that I want to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Have you ever tried Tai Chi? I've wanted to try that, but that's that was one thing I found that's supposed to be one of the healthiest because you can be 100 years old doing Tai Chi. Yeah. And the images of Tai Chi are so funny to me. You just imagine these like older like, <laughs> Asian women in parks with visors and like like long flowy. Well, it's kind of like talk. it's kind of like self Reiki healing. It's like yeah. you're moving around energy, but it's all within yourself. It's not like you're healing yeah. someone else. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I was just reading. Uh, well, I told I told you about this actually when we had breakfast. But I was reading The Power of Now, and. Mm -hmm he has this one meditation where you just go into your own body and you just feel the internal life force that sort of moves around within you and you can actually focus it on different parts of your body. Like you can move that life force down to the bottoms of your feet. You can move it up to the crown of your head. You can let it sit in your chest and just like feel it circulating. But I feel like Tai Chi is similar in that regard where it's like you're just practicing moving around the energy and even though it sounds like mystical and new age, there's got to be some benefits of that that science has yet to uncover. It's just like cleansing your body's energy. Yeah, I, I don't say why not. I, again, I, I've done it like once or twice years ago, so I have no personal experience or I'm not very well read on the topic, but I don't see why it wouldn't be potentially beneficial in ways that we don't completely understand yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any thoughts on exercise on your side, Justin? I mean, Justin, for yeah. our listeners, you used to be a triathlete, right? Mm. Yeah, I was, I was really competitive. And yeah, yeah I, so I got injured since then. But anyways, um, yeah, I started out basically only doing really intense endurance stuff. Um, I didn't, I mean, I did some uh, weight training. Um, I did some maintenance uh, strength training, you know, just to make sure that I didn't get injured, which I ended up getting injured anyways. But <laughs> I just, I think uh, fitness totally depends on what your goals are, right? Mm, so if, yeah. if your goal is to be super fast in um, a triathlon, it's, well, number one, you need extreme cardiovascular endurance because you're, you know, all three events re rely on that. But then beyond that, it's really specific to triathlon. You have to swim, you have to bike, and you have to run. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you want to live a long time, it's probably good to have a really balanced sort of regimen where you are doing yoga, you are doing strength training. Because, you know, like Ross said, yoga isn't everything. You don't get a lot of 
pulling exercises with yoga. There's a lot of pushing uh, of body weight, uh, but you don't get to do like deadlifts, right? Mm -hmm. I think deadlifts are super important. Um, But anyways, yeah, I think also is just like full body and yeah, sort of move around without any risk of straining Mm -hmm. anything. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that you can do, and you can also uh, layer in different types of diet strategies with your fitness, with your uh, workout strategies. So, like sometimes uh, Mark Sisson, who is a really big voice in this space, he's like a six year old dude with the the body of a twenty five year old, like super jacked. Uh, but he um, will sometimes fast post workout. Because the workout uh, spikes your hum- your body's production of HGH or uh, human growth hormone, but when you eat afterwards, the blood sugar spike will uh, decrease your body. It'll decrease in your body. It kind of suppresses the HGH. Mm-hmm. So you know sometimes you can layer in different timings of meals, different types of meals um, for fitness. I just think. Um, you know, if you want to do it for longevity, it's probably good to have a super balanced yeah. sort of workout where you're trying a whole bunch of different things, you're doing a whole bunch of different things, and you're not missing out on any part of your body, really. Well, that's interesting what you said about the blood sugar level dropping, and you know, because in my research, I also found that typically when you go to the doctor, you get your cholesterol measured, and they're like, "Okay, there it is. That's your cholesterol." But your cholesterol, mm-hmm. along with everything else, fluctuates enormously depending on what you've eaten, how recently you, eat, you ate, what you ate, did you exercise that day, did you get a good night's sleep. So really, I think a lot of the future of fitness is going to be measuring things on an ongoing basis so you can see the broader trends rather than like mm-hmm. going to your doctor once every six months and, and getting some measurements at that point in time. Yeah. I'm interested what you guys think about like the whole wearable revolution and and you know the measured life and how much of that is helping versus just being a distraction and and then there's other aspects too like to health which is you know mental health and mindfulness right. and meditation and you know I mean there's there's so much that goes into the word fitness that yeah I mean, so on term in terms of the wearables, I just ordered an aura ring. Um, um, so so that measures heart rate variability, your heart rate, uh, I think body temperature, and like tracks your sleep and stuff. But this is the first true wearable that I've ever had. I used to be totally against all wearables because I just want to go off of how I feel. Mm-hmm. And then um, I got to I had this you know idea where if you could layer on all of these different sources of data about yourself, you know, treat yourself as an N of one experiment because you're totally unlike everybody else. You know, Mm -hmm. I have the aura ring data. I have sleep data. I have my um, diet, like everything that I've eaten, maybe even the weather data, like all of these things filtering into some, some analysis that might be able to tell us what works for us individually. So I think, you know, quantif- the quantified self movement has value, but also, like you said, it, I think it can be distracting if if the insights that you gain aren't even that valuable. Like if you could have just gone mm-hmm. out in nature, not really worrying about anything except for how you feel. Like I, I don't know what the 
the additional benefit of the yeah. intense quanti- self quantification is. I mean, on on the extreme side, the benefit that I you know I found this I saw this tweet the other day where this guy had some sort of heart. Um, I, I forget what the exact like syndrome was, but basically his Apple Watch noticed that his heart rate was going out of control, and it messaged him, "Hey, go to the emergency room right now." And he went there, and they told him that if he hadn't gone there, he probably would have been dead. And so on the extreme side, there have already been cases where an Apple Watch or some wearable has saved your life. But on the other side, I've had many friends who have gotten like some sort of wearable and they're like, shit, now my wrist is buzzing at me. Like, how am I going to get anything done? So, you know. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree with with both you guys. Um, Wearables are great. And I actually got exposed to wearables through... Orange Theory, which is that fitness oh, yeah. chain, has the heart rate monitor uh, workouts. And, and tell and, our listeners a little bit about what their philosophy is, because it's interesting. Yeah, sure. Orange Theory has been really successful in sort of the boutique fitness genre. They basically have a network of franchised high-intensity interval training studios in which you can do one of three things. So you go in as a class of 20 to 40 people and you split into a running segment, a rowing segment, and then a strength segment. And the entire time you're wearing a heart rate monitor, whether it's on your chest or on your wrist, and the workouts are more or less, the cardio portions are more or less um, aligned with different heart rate zones. Mm. So the name or theory um, they call it that because the orange zone, which is a certain range uh, within your heart rate um, is the prefer- is, is where you basically want to spend most of your workout in to maximize fat loss. And this is based mm-hmm. on their own theory and exercise science. Um, and is that and kind of the same for everyone or is that dependent on uh, the yeah. person? Yeah, so they, they, they take in your age and maybe it's your weight and height and they determine based on that information, you know, what your max heart rate is, right? So if you're 25, your max heart rate is maybe... 195, 200 on average. They take an average and then they basically scale that into groups, right? So the orange group is maybe it's 80 to 90% of your max, or maybe it's 75 to 85%. That's that's one zone, right? So that's, you know, for a 25-year-old person, that's going to be much higher than for a 60-year-old person in that class. So the actual absolute, you know, heart rate is going to be different, but it's calibrated to your age. So it sort of levels the playing field for everyone in that class. So you have this wearable and you have a screen that you're looking at sort of while you're working out, re- referencing to the screen to see, hey, is my heart beating, you know, in the optimal sort of target heart rate zone for me to maximize, you know, fat loss and also, you know, overall fitness health. Um, so, I, I mean, I think they've done a really, really great job just from a business standpoint because they just combine the wearables with, you know, a pretty thoughtful sort of exercise regimen and then franchised it in a way that made them you know, stamp out 700 to a thousand locations, uh, now, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of my first experience with wearables is actually taking these classes. And then I realized personally as a person interested in fitness and, uh, you know, wanting to become more fit, having that sort of feedback loop between my heart and my eyes through a monitor mm-hmm. helped me, you know, stay honest when I worked out and helped me push a little bit harder when I saw that 
you know, according to my age, I, I could push harder, right? For right. example, I was in a lower zone in that class, yeah. for example. That part about staying honest to yourself really resonates with me. Because like yeah, Louis, Louis think- C.K. has a bit where he's like, when I go to the gym, I'm basically just wearing shorts. Like, I don't have the motivation <laughs> to actually do the workouts. Right. right. So if wearables allow people to have that feedback loop that give them extra motivation to work out harder and track the workouts over time, I think it's great. Like anything, however, whether it's new technology or a new woman in your life, for example, things can be distracting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you might also, you know, marry that woman and have children, have a beautiful life together. So. It's just how you, how you engage. Yeah, exactly. How you engage with these these quote unquote distractions or these tools. Right. Cool. Well, I want to talk now about switching to mental fitness because that is one area we haven't explored yet. And no matter how physically fit you are, that doesn't mean you can surf the world's biggest wave or free solo the the you know biggest wall. You know, I just watched free solo with Alex Honnold and. Um, we post it on our social media, like some of the most incredible feats of humankind, whether it's like paragliding or surfing or free solo rock climbing. And so much of these sports, I mean, even the ones that aren't life or death, it's so much about mental fitness. And yeah. the idea of training your mind isn't something that's caught on in society. I mean, meditation and mindfulness are definitely more prominent now than they used to be. But I think the analogy of it really being like physical training for your body, like if you don't go to the gym, you're not going to be strong in the same way. Mm-hmm. If you don't meditate or have some time of your day where you're just like, you know, not in the same, uh, you know, juggling all the thoughts that you typically are, then you're not going to be mentally fit. Mm-hmm. What, what have your guys experience been? And I mean, have you guys uh, practice meditation and what sort of effects have you guys noticed? Yeah, sure. Before we dive, before we dive in, I just want to clarify this point on what you mean when you say mentally fit, right? Yeah. Like, cause we're talking about, you're using examples in the sort of extreme sports arena. And I think those individuals are definitely mentally fit in the sense that they have the courage and focus and flow for lack of better words to achieve at a very very high level yeah like for, like sort of- i mean i think alex honnold is the perfect example because he's climbed el capitan numerous times but climbing it without a rope is like a whole nother ball game and the only reason it's a whole nother ball game is because the mental um pressure is so much more extreme than when he knows that if he falls he's fine and I feel like with a lot of, not even just sports, but even broader in the you know aspects of life, like let's say you go to work and your boss is like yelling at you for something. Some people might like freak out and just like quit on the spot or like swear at their boss or like do something they're going to regret. Whereas people who are more mentally fit, they can sort of compartmentalize and almost like it's like you're ex- escaping within yourself and you're like, mm-hmm. I'm like um, one one poem, uh, this like Zen poem that I really like, talks about how be like the ocean, where whatever waves are crashing on the top of the ocean, you're like the bottom of the ocean, and all these things yeah. are happening up top, but they don't affect you or your composure or your peacefulness. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful philosophy, and I totally agree. And that's a big reason why I do have a meditation practice, and I 
see the value in a meditation practice, whether it's traditional sort of sitting cross-legged Vipassana or if it's, you know, finding other ways to meditate in yoga or, you know, people meditate. I think doing these action sports, for example, I think that's a meditation for these people, mm. you know, because it, it, meditation is really a practice in focus. So if you're doing something that helps, that allows you to be hyper-focused on what is happening right now, whether it's looking at your breath or doing activity that you were so engrossed in, that's the same thing yeah, that I think actually yeah. your brain that helps you be here and now and therefore very productive and therefore very successful and oh yeah i mean even like going to a music festival for instance it's like when you're you know so much of the music festival is like prepping for it like you get there there's all these logistics you gotta wait in lines but it's all worth it when you see your favorite artist perform and you're totally lost in the moment along with everyone else and it's like time ceases to exist and and so that, I mean, that also is very much like Vipassana meditation. Yeah. When you reach those states, you like those states. You want to stay in those states. So it's a positive feedback loop. Yeah. And it's not just about like how you can deal with what life throws at you. It's also about your actual brain health. So for instance, there have been these, you know, there have been these studies. I, I have a book that is all about this. But there was one study, Sarah Lazar, neuroscientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, found that when she did brain scans of these Tibetan monks who had been meditating you know, many hours per day for their whole life, a 50-year-old monk who's done that amount of meditation has the same brain as a 25-year-old. So mm. the amount of gray matter in the brain was um, you know, so so much less than or i forget if it's good to have brain matter it, enough I think it's positively correlated with how yeah it was positively correlated yeah. with um the more that you yeah, meditate yeah. the more healthy your brain is yeah i think it's totally totally the case yeah and then there's I'm, just oh sorry go ahead justin well i was just gonna um touch on the the whole brain fitness thing a little bit more yeah, too because yeah. because sort of to um Ross's point, I think there's probably a, a difference in the types of, you know, brains or uh, brain um, training that is done by someone like Anna, Alex Honnold with it, where it's just a really high skill activity. So what I would be curious to see is, and what I would guess is that meditation is sort of a general brain training mm. um, thing or activity. Whereas something super narrow like rock climbing, um, it's you know it's really good activity for the brain, but for only that very specific thing, um, hmm. it you know it might leak leak over into other areas of I don't know that. life, I but think, that doesn't. I don't know if I, I agree with that. I mean, I think to Ross's point about how when you're in that focus and living in the here and now and the present, it really is the same sort of brain state. Yeah, so, yeah, so I think it, it just depends on the person. I think, so Brazilian jiu-jitsu is another one where you're definitely in the moment doing something high-skilled. You know, if you're out of the moment, then you get, you know, choked out or something. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there's a lot of high-skilled jiu-jitsu players that do not act mindfully off the mat even though they're high-skilled, high, you know, there's a oh, lot of training going on. So, so there's, 
there's a lot of um, training the difference to be between in the moment being really good at your particular activity as opposed yeah. to being someone who's just Zen in all aspects of life and can kind of yeah, so maybe the, the type of brain training, um, some are more general than others. Maybe some, some brain training, you know, ways to be in the moment and to be focused are better for general um, mindfulness. Um, I, you know, I don't really know. Yeah, no, just, no, I think I, that's right. I mean, I watched this Red Bull documentary of one of those guys that has the wing suits. And mm -hmm. he, you can watch the video. In this one video, he actually clips this rock and has just I mean, oh. massive I mean you could imagine how much massive internal organ damage you would have from something like that but he immediately got back out there as soon as he was recovered and it was because he was chasing that feeling of what mm -hmm. it's like to be totally in the present while he's there flying through some canyon but if he had learned meditation so he could get into that state even when what he's not flying, hurtling through space, then that would obviously be a lot better for his health. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then some other points just about mental health that I found while doing some research is that the single biggest determinant of a long life is if you have good social connections. Like if you, whether you, you know, live with a loving spouse or you have children around you or you have just really good friends, like, or if you're in a monastery, you have lots of good monk friends or like, that is the biggest determining factor, like having people around. And the, the, the study that I actually found this in is because they were trying to figure out what's the best sport for a long life. And they found that it didn't matter that much which type of sport you were doing, but that team sports people who did team sports ended up having a better outcome uh, for their health than people who just like did solo sports. So I thought that was interesting. I don't know if you guys have any reactions to that. My only reaction is next time you're in your yoga class, just say hi to your neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good benefit from connection. So don't forget that fact, you know? Yeah. And then be so selfish in connection with the person next to you, even if you don't know them. Yeah. <laughs> And some other, other things I learned from yoga classes is that walking in the grass barefoot, and Ross, I know you're a big proponent of this, that has serious health benefits. I mean, if you stay connected to nature and you're there, like, you know, hugging trees and frolicking through the fields and picking daisies, and like, you're going to be a much healthier, happier person who's probably going to live a longer life than someone who's just only wears rubber shoes on concrete all day and you know so it's true there's a resurgence in that type of like therapy i was reading an article about what's called forest bathing and it's a notion that i think out of japan but it's just that it's it's the idea that inherently getting in touch with nature by taking a walk in the forest or you know connecting your feet to the ground is inherently good for us as, as humans and as individuals part of this greater whole. Um, and it's, they didn't really, weren't able to really explain what the reasons were outside of hypothesizing that it was great to uh, be in that sort of environment that exposes you to like natural essential oils, for example, mm. exa example, air and things like that, that I guess in combination have this sort of rejuvenating, rejuvenating effect. And I think there's, a, again, for me personally, there's like a deeper, like soul connection that I think is gratifying and good for one's health once you know you connect with nature in those ways. 
Yeah. So I think that general practice is called grounding, just for listeners. Oh, interesting. So, so if you're going out and you know standing barefoot on the ground, that's just you're grounding with the earth. Yeah. So I, there's a couple things there that are interesting. I don't know how much of it is true, but uh, supposedly there are you know el- some sort of mag- there's some sort of magnetic field that's radiating up from Earth, and when we have when we're touching Earth, we're you know, built bridging that sort of connection with our bodies. Um, mm. There's, you know, there's something uh, like that. I would have to, you know, fact check. I don't, I don't know the details of that um, off the top of my head. But there are ways that you can bring uh, grounding into your home. Like some people will run copper wires from the earth up to some mat on their bed, so they're being grounded while they're, mm. um, you know, while they're sleeping. Some people, there are a couple of uh, shoe companies that build a little copper plate at the bottom of the shoe, so you're not totally losing out. Because it's a a high conductor, yeah, it's a really good conductor. So it's something to do with the electrical fields of, you know, the earth and us and, you know, know bridging those gaps. uh, Lots of people who are depressed, they'll, like, even doctors will recommend gardening as a hobby. And Mm. gardening is working directly with the earth a lot of time. you know, you're really getting in there, and that has huge benefits. Um, Mm. Awesome. Well, I think we should get into now the future scenarios. So if you guys are ready, let's take a quick break, and then we'll get into the worst case, best case, and most likely for the future of fitness. All right, let's get into the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. So what do you guys think is the worst case scenario for the future of fitness? So I, I can start. I think there's a, a lot of components to this question. When I imagine the worst case scenario, I, I think more of it from a sort of social perspective. I think the worst case is individuals looking at fitness purely for its aesthetic value and not not for its you know physiological and mental value and that leading to individuals who are overtraining for example just to get a result right overstressing their bodies which is actually breaking their bodies down over time leading to yeah. other issues um, rather than looking at you know fitness as a holistic part of their sort of health regimen so i think that if that were the case where a growing number of people were doing that, you would have, you know, you know, overall higher levels of stress because if you're working out a lot, that will bleed into your, you know, everyday life. And then we'll have just falling, uh, you know, health rates or health, mm-hmm. you know, out- outcomes, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. What do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting one. I, so, um, I had a hard time thinking of a worst case scenario. So mine was more about the misinformation of Mm. health and fitness. So, you know, we, we've kind of seen times where, um, there's a lot of, uh, misinformation, particularly in this space where there's, you know, diets that claim to be the best diet ever or fitness plans that claim to be the best fitness plan ever. I just think, it could get, you know, there could be a situation where it's all of these people, you know, it's not, the reason I struggled is because it's not very different from where we are right now. I feel like some people just struggle to find the thing that works for them. 
uh, mm-hmm. because there's so much information out there. It's really hard to figure out, you know, what will work for you. So no one really tries to find what works for them individually. It's just kind of like what people suggest on the internet. I don't know. It just, yeah. it, it wasn't a very, I don't know how I feel about this worst case scenario because it is so similar to where, where we are right now. Um, yeah. But. I mean, I, I mean, the biggest change that we always talk about on the podcast is the the post automation world, like uh-huh. when a large portion of workers can no longer effectively contribute, how does that impact their lives? And mm-hmm. you know, what sort of resources are they given by the, the haves? So, I mean, when I think about the worst case scenario, already we're living a pretty, we as society are living a pretty sedentary digital life. Most people work in front of a computer and then they get, they drive home in their car and then they turn on Netflix. And it's like, you're not moving in any of those situations. So for my worst case scenario, it's once the post automation world, um, you know, once we, we live in the post automation world that people replace what they were doing, which is largely sitting in front of a desk with, you know, gaming all day or, or being on social networks all day and basically having even an even higher proportion of sedentary digital media consumption than we're having now. And that's even worse than the current situation because when you're working, at least right now, most people work with some colleagues. So you are socializing, which we talked about earlier is a huge indicator for long-term health and you're Mm -hmm. solving interesting problems. So you're still working your brain. But I think the worst case scenario in the future is a lot like the Wall-E scenario or like a Ready Player One scenario where you're not using your brain at all and you're not really socializing with real people in real life. You're just consuming stuff. Stuff is coming at you. You're taking in all of these photons, but you're not really doing much work because the story's already been given to you in a very like formulaic way like most shows are. And that would be terrible. I think that would lead to like an idiocracy type of situation where we actually get dumber over, you know, most people will be dumber than they were in the past because they're just not using their brains and they're not socialized. Or bodies. Yeah, Yeah, we're we're already seeing that with with mobile phone usage, right? They're saying that our attention spans are going down because we're tied to these devices that are constantly shooting us with these short 140 character messages that are not you know, providing for sustained focus and therefore leading to decreased uh, outcomes in, you know, higher thinking abilities and tests and things like that, just because these devices. So I would agree would definitely be worst case is just, you know, influx of connectivity leading to inactivity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and, And, you know, most cat videos get more views than most TED Talks. So it's like, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but like certainly the summation of views is much greater for cat videos. Um, But another aspect I was thinking for worst case is the environmental aspect. And I foresee a situation where we're consuming a ton of meat. A lot of that meat is factory farmed, but people aren't even getting the health benefits because they're still consuming tons of processed crap along with that low quality meat. And so it's kind of the worst of all worlds where people aren't healthy because it's not like they're having a carnivore diet where they're getting rid of all the crap and they're just having, you know, some nutritious food. And also the environment is taking a huge toll because there's 
there's a major carbon footprint for each person. And especially as yep. we look at how, you know, currently third world countries, as they develop and get more wealthy, there's a big question of how are we going to feed all of these people with the diets that we know people tend to have once they reach a certain level of affluence. So those, those are all part of my worst case scenario. Um, yeah. And maybe we can get into the best case scenario now. Best case scenario. Because mine yeah. is kind of the flip side of that. So in the best case scenario, we, on the environmental side, we innovate in the form of lab grown meat so that we minimize the carbon footprint. So people mm -hmm. are still able to have these high protein nutritious diets. They can still be plant-based, but they're able to have some high protein in their diet, but we're not destroying the planet because we're not having to pay for all the transportation. We're not having to pay to actually grow these cows. The methane isn't coming out of the cows. Um, so that would be the best case as far as environmental. And as far as health, I think on the UBI front, if society gets itself together and decides, hey, we're going to do a freedom dividend like what Andrew Yang wants, where every person is going to get a thousand bucks a month no matter what. And now you also have more free time because a lot of people don't have jobs or you have to work less hours than you used to. In the best case scenario, that time is spent exercising and socializing, ideally doing both together, like having team sports. And if, if you think about like in some future scenario where we have high tech urban centers where people are living closely together and there are team sports, there's there's, uh, you know, coffee shops that are vibrant with conversation and there's all of this interaction and people are walking places rather than driving because it's been designed in a way where people are able to get to places on foot. And I mean, I could see a world that is truly a best case idyllic world in a post automation world where you don't have to spend all this time in front of a computer. Actually, you can spend time with your friends and frolicking in the fields like we've been talking about. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. It makes me feel better now that we're talking about the best case scenario. Yeah, we get the worst case out of the way. <laughs> yeah, I think on my end, uh, so rather than a growing percentage of folks looking at fitness for its aesthetic value, it's a growing percentage of folks looking at as a part of their overall sort of health regimen, and people who are just increasingly looking at fitness in a in a balanced way to feel good physically mentally and otherwise um that's, so that's that's sort of in summation of that point i think beyond that i think looking ahead towards the future the best case would be having a more and more of these services that we're talking about you know biometric services wearables the combination of all this sort of data tracking that we talked about already leading into sort of personalized health solutions, personalized health recommendations across diet, across exercise, across lifestyle and, and mindfulness and other things. Because, um, you know, once, once we are able to make sense of all that data and have it so personalized, I think there's going to be just a, a potential for a robust uh, and and completely holistic, individualized sort of health 
um, sort of solution for every individual, which I think is probably the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so what I was going to say almost perfectly mimics what Ross was saying about individualized fitness, because I can, I can imagine sometime in the future, we're going to have some form of wearables or injectables or something where basically we're getting a real time feed of all of our blood markers, almost like what, uh, Theranos was trying to do but have something that can always be in your body whether it's in like a fingertip or something that's always reading out your biometrics Mm -hmm. so from that and from other things like what you're eating and all these other forms of tracking and hopefully these forms of tracking are one safe the data is not being sold so you know Mm -hmm. we can ignore the downsides of what what that might pose but if you have these extreme um, health trackers, then you can also have extreme personalization. You can even tie that into your genetic makeup and have personalized meal plans based on your ancestral heritage. Like there's there's a lot of w- there are many you know good ways that this could go if we have strong enough tracking um, and you know if people want to have that tracking it should be a decision like we shouldn't force it on people but to be able to have that option i think it would um just make fitness easier and more Mm -hmm. optimal for basically everybody yeah yeah personalization is going to be big Mm -hmm. for future tech for sure um yeah so let's get into the most likely scenario most likely scenario So my most likely scenario is that by and large, people do get healthier in the future. I think a lot of the trends are pointing to people being healthier, but I think people are also going to become more alienated. I mean, some of the big companies that are doing really well right now are things like, you know, Peloton and the Mirror and lots of at-home fitness programs. And that's really good because I think people are going to get a lot healthier I just wonder if they're going to miss out on some of the socialization and if we're going to spend a lot of time just working out like digitally and in the same kind of the same kind of paradigm you were talking about Ross where like most people go to their yoga classes and it's like they're like they're like a horse with blinders on they like forget mm-hmm. that other humans exist and they they're just really there for themselves like I think that trend may exacerbate over time and yeah. I really worry about, I mean, that's one of my biggest worries in general, aside from, you know, AI, which I think has its own set of existential worries on a social mm-hmm. level. My, my concern is that people are going to be really alienated from one another and they're going to swap real world connections with some parody of what those connections are supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly agree pretty completely. I, I'm like you, Matt, pretty optimistic. And I think that general health outcomes will, you know, improve over time um, as a result of this level of information sharing that we're seeing as a result of internet and devices and connectivity is just unheard of, right? So I think that because we are sort of more educated than ever about the connection between fitness and overall health, I think that this trend in, in improving health outcomes will continue. But to your point, because we are more connected than ever, I think there will be generational differences as it pertains to folks 
socializing in class, for example, or, or socializing when it comes to exercising, which again, we said is so important. You look at, you know, younger folks these days who are, you know, in, in high school now or just growing up with tablets, for example, right? Mm. And they are driving so much entertainment from a screen it's going to be very, very concerning what happens later when they're forced to socialize in an exercise class, for example. Some of these people are going to be left behind because they don't have these fundamental, you know, opportunities to develop those social skills when they're young. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there is definitely that, that caveat. Yeah, team sports are so, I mean, even for my own life, being in a team sport has like, it had such a profound effect on me that if I had only done solo sports my whole childhood, I feel like I'd be a totally different person now. Yeah, yeah I guess uh, for my likely scenario, it's kind of a combination of what we've talked about so far. So I guess we, I think we will see people that are, you know, plugged into their VR worlds being totally sedentary, you know, in the future, even post UBI. But then there's also going to be people that are, either feeling or using quantified um, self devices to achieve optimal level of performance and whatever it is. Because I've seen that yeah. people people in whatever sports or activities are just getting better and better at it. Like the peak is still rising. So I think that we're going to see that peak continue to rise in terms of fitness, but we'll also have, I think, a pretty substantial portion of the population in the totally sedentary life plugged into the, their VR worlds. Yeah. Yeah. That's about, yeah. I think that's a good place to end it. We are all so gathered here today to talk about three Thank very you, everyone, for things. listening. Thank you, Ross, for being here. We're going to talk and about what has happened, what is currently yeah, thanks, happening, fun. and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future.